The topic of this podcast is to uh, discuss about what is currently happening at Kraft Heinz. This is a terrible story, but it's important to be able to draw some lessons from management lessons from this kind of story. In fact, as you know, this is a broadly publicized debacle. Uh, what happened at Kraft Heinz was, at the very beginning, a successful merger between Kraft and Heinz. Heinz bought Kraft in July 2015, and the stock price at that time was $70 per share. It went up to $95 to go down under below $30, which is basically something which started two years ago. Uh, we always now discuss the Kraft Heinz problem uh, as a recent problem, but in fact, it started two years ago. At the end of 2016, in fact, the company is worth 60% more than its book value. The name of that is a Goodwill. It's a fantastic Goodwill. It's about value creation. The figure is down from 60% to 30% at the end of 2017, so one year later. And today, end of May, beginning of June 2019, the company is worth $30 billion less than its book value, which is now dramatic value destruction. The company announced at the end of May that it would publish its account with a delay uh, that probably a provision of about $15 billion had to be introduced in the P&L and that the accounts of 2016 and 2017 had to be worked on again by the auditors, which basically is no good news. Of course, in such a case, um, the question is who is guilty? If you look at the two main shareholders, they are appointed by people and they are said, well, you know what, what did they do with that? The main shareholder is Berkshire Hathaway by Warren Buffett and BH uh, owns something like 26.7% of the shares, followed by the very well-known fund, investment fund, 3G Capital, with 22.15%. Uh, 3G is quite well known for its uh, kind of brutal methods um, used in order to generate cost savings, cost reductions. You, you lay off a number of people, you close sites, you generate economies of scale, sometimes with normal shared services, but sometimes getting a little bit beyond what should be done, and you renegotiate, of course, with the suppliers, uh, purchasing prices, terms of payment, and things like that. Basically, the question is, does it work? In the answer is, yes, in the short run, it works. From 2015 to 2017, what happened? The gross margin of the company went up from 31.4% to about 37%. So it's, a, it's an improvement of 6% in manufacturing gross margin. SGNA down from 17 to 11.2%, another 6%. And at the end of the day, what happens? The operating income, the, the, the profit from operations, a well-known EBIT, is up from 14-something to 25.8%. The earnings before a preferred dividend is up from 650 million to about 11 billion, and the earnings per share are skyrocketing. This is absolutely fantastic. So how do you get that? Well, basically, at the very beginning, you improve productivity. But in the medium term, what do you do? You start slashing expenses, which are actual investment. 
If you invest less in marketing, in promotion, in advertising, in innovation, in people, in human capital, what happens? Of course, you invest less, it improves the account in the short run, but it creates a very, very big problem in the long run. What's interesting is to make a parallel between this story and what happened at Coca-Cola, which also was uh, owned by or controlled more or less by Warren Buffett. Let's go back 30 years ago. Um, Warren Buffett buys Coca-Cola shares in 1988. At that time, the stock price is about $3 per share and his equity stake is going to reach 10%. With 10%, you're not supposed to control, but you are the main shareholders and you have a strong impact on what's happening as a company, especially deciding on the strategy, on the top people, and so on and so forth. And it's a very interesting period to invest in Coca-Cola because the company has just restructured its bottling activity. They have created Coca-Cola Enterprises, which is gathering the whole bottling activity in North America. And in fact, this is a consequence of a very, very tricky uh, plan, which had been designed by Doug Ivester as a chief financial officer. And it was named the 49 Solution. Um, let's go back a minute on the 49 Solution. The problem in the 80s is when the market for corporate control is emerging, uh, any company wants to avoid hostile takeovers, right? And basically, how do you avoid that? Well, a sound way to avoid being taken over is to make more profits. And the company's economic profit is getting up. I will explain a little bit later how it works. And it's nicely correlated with the stock price. So basically, if you want to increase the economic profit, you have to increase the profitability, which is generated by business operations, a very well-known return on capital employed. And if you go back to the early days of Coca-Cola, uh, there is something which is very important to remember. It is what was referred as the Asa Candler mistake. The Asa Candler had been the, the owner of Coca-Cola um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And in fact, he did not believe at all in the, in the successful bottling activity. So he outsourced and he transferred very much the economic power in the hands of the bottlers. If you want to improve the return capital of your business operations and you look at this economic rent, which is, quote, unduly transferred to the, uh, to the bottlers, what do you want to do? You're going to try to insource the bottling activity and giving the economic power back to Coca-Cola. And what they did is, in fact, they insourced the bottling activity. They canceled the contract between the bottlers and Coca-Cola, which was, in fact, giving the power to the bottlers. They replaced that by a contract which was giving the power to Coca-Cola. And they outsourced, again, the bottling, creating Coca-Cola enterprises. And the company is now going to be listed in the stock market. Coca-Cola will keep less than 50%. This is why it was named the 49 solution, in order to avoid the full consolidation, the full integration of the accounts of CCE in the accounts of Coca-Cola. This is a bit complex, and I'm not going to elaborate too much on that. 
But you know what? You integrate, you cancel the contract, you transfer the economic power and the profitability from the bottlers to Coca-Cola. Then you list Coca-Cola Enterprises. And in fact, you're, you're, you're capturing the economic rent, which was beforehand in the hands of the bottlers. It's very complex, but it's very efficient. And it worked. As a consequence, what was the, the outcome of that? That plus very good management, very good company, very good uh, uh, talents, right? The, the stock price is going to go up and Coca-Cola is going to keep its independence, is going to avoid being taken over. Ten years after, um, the, the, the stock price of the company is $40. If you remember that Warren Buffett bought the company for $3 per share and now it's worth $40, you can congratulate Mr. Buffett, who is a, who is a fantastic investor, by the way. At that time, Roberto Guizueta, who is the CEO of Coca-Cola, became the first CEO who is not uh, an entrepreneur, just becoming billionaire with his salary, his bonus, and his stock options, which demonstrate that he was a good manager and he was an outstanding negotiator when discussing his, uh, his income with the board. In 97, Roberto Guizueta will unfortunately pass away and is going to be naturally replaced by the former CFO, Doug Ivesser, who becomes chief executive officer. Well, it looks like a nice story. So where is the problem? The problem is after. After, what does it mean? It means that Coca-Cola is going to observe a, a, a permanent drop, a continuous drop of its stock price, and the stock price will, will lose half of its value in seven years. Uh, the, the company experienced a peak in 1998 and will go back to the stock price only in 2015. And if you observe the combination of stock price evolution and dividend policy, from 1998 to 2010, the accumulated shareholders' return will be exactly zero, which demonstrates that, in fact, the dividends which were distributed to shareholders were hardly compensating the drop in the stock price. At the end of the first period of 18 months as a CEO, Doug Iverson was um, debarked a bit brutally by Warren Buffett and Don Quixote, the former chief operating officer of Coca-Cola, on an airport tarmac. And he was replaced uh, immediately by a gentleman whose name was Doug Daft, with a great and poetic um, nickname, which was Daft the Knife. Now, what happened? Well, in fact, the, the company's business was very profitable. And the 49 solution, which had been implemented in 1987, was so successful that in 1993, the company designed and implemented a new remuneration plan for its manager, a long-term incentive plan, which was simply based on uh, the increase in the economic profit. What is an economic profit? To make it simple, it's a profit you generate in business operations, well, net of tax, we name that NOPAC, net operating profit after tax in finance. And as this is a profit gen generated by business operations, well, what do you do? You deduct from that the total cost of financing of the business operations. Shareholders and financial creditors, they have contributed to the financing of the invested capital, the capital employed, and they expect to return, which is what they could get somewhere else in the market with this, in the same category of risk. And it's named the WAC, the Weighted Average Cost of Capital. Calculating the WAC is not the topic of this podcast, but it is simply basically understanding that um, the WAC is what they could get. So if they get more than the WAC, 
it's a good surprise. It means that the company has beaten the market and it is about value creation. So um, an economic profit, when positive, demonstrates that your operations are extremely successful. They are doing a better job than the, the peer group in the category of risk. And it's by itself very good. Now, the long-term incentive plan is not going to be based on the economic profit, but on the increase in the economic profit. So, uh, you are in uh, 2018, uh, and you said, okay, you generated a, a good economic profit. That's congratulations, folks. Um, but 2019 should not be a positive economic profit. It should be an economic profit which is exceeding the one which you created and generated in 2018. So you understand that you're moving forward, you're running, permanently running after improving, increasing is better than improving, increasing the, the economic profit. So what do you do? You cut costs. And you cut costs which are actual investment and you start a solid battle and fight against your bottler, which is Coca-Cola Enterprises. And most of the activity of the operating managers of Coca-Cola at that time uh, was very much focusing on well, how much I could get from the, from the bottler and not which kind of value I can create for my customers, which is probably a bit sound. What were the consequences of this management behavior? Basically, some quality issues. There was this very well-known uh, story, broadly publicized, of uh, pupils in a school in Belgium. And they were poisoned by the Coca-Cola, the drug. Well, it doesn't seem to be, um, to be very much an issue, by the way, and nobody knew exactly what happened. Um, but um, a bit more on problem, there were problems with justice, right? Um, discrimination, gender discrimination, racial discrimination, and Coca-Cola had big problems, which very much spoiled the reputation of the company. This reputation uh, uh, made the company lose the battle for the con control of Rangina. And in fact, it was a, a nice uh, communication fight uh, driven by Pepsi, Pepsi said they should not take that, uh, they should not take the control for Rangina, it's not a nice company, and so on and so forth. And it worked, by the way. Interestingly, um, the reputation was a, a strong asset at Coca-Cola. If you remember, or maybe you don't remember, but in 1984, Coca-Cola had tried to launch a new Coke. Uh, it lasted three months, right? It was a disaster, it was a commercial disaster. Um, to, to make it simple, Coca-Cola was launching a product whose taste was look, quite close to the taste of the Pepsi. Um, and it was a disaster. So three months after they cancelled and they regained their entire market share and the customers were very faithful, very loyal to the company, etc. Now, in 1998, the reputation of the company is very much tarnished by the evolution of its management style, its management processes, etc. Later on, there was a recovery. A gentleman whose name is Muta Kent um, was appointed chief executive officer in, in 2008 and he almost retired in 2017. Uh, it, it was a great CEO, by the way. He did a fantastic job and he installed the bottling again. So Coca-Cola Enterprises was a separate company with a bottling activity in North America. He cancelled that. He reintegrated the bottling, the North American bottling, on the principle that it's better to use your energy to fight against your competitors than fight against yourself. 
And Coca-Cola was fighting against Coca-Cola Enterprises. Uh, it's probably better use of your energy to fight against Pepsi. So he reintegrated the bottling, and at the end of the day, Coca-Cola Enterprises was given another mission in Western Europe. The consequence is the stock price went dramatically up. And uh, from 20, uh, 2008 to 2017, it went up from 20 to 50 US dollars, which is a great, uh, a great job made by, by Mutar Kent. Now, which lessons can we draw from that? Uh, the first one is very, very simple one, a business strategy. The strategy of a company is not an accounting strategy. The, the accounting strategy, uh, which was uh, the 49 solution and what followed, neglects very much what makes a success in the long run of a company. It's about product. It's about innovation. It's about customers. It's about people. It's about your employees. It's about your suppliers, stakeholders at large. Of course, the result, the profit, the accounting stuff is extremely important. But it is not the source of a decision. It is a consequence of a good decision. Now, a KPI, you know this very well-known key performance indicators. A performance indicator, you remember these, a very well-known KPI is a key performance indicator. A good performance as an indicator is a consequence of a good decision which you took yesterday. So it is the output and it's not the input. It does not mean that the rationality behind the economic profit, which consists in being more profitable in business operation than the WAC, it should be abandoned. But the KPI, again, is about performance and value creation. It is a consequence. It's just measuring something and it is not deciding on anything. So if you will go back to Kraft Heinz, well, the parallel with Coca-Cola is quite interesting. You reduce the cost, you focus on the profit in the short run, and in the medium term, quite quickly, by the way, it was quicker for Kraft Heinz than for Coca-Cola. You destroy value. Though Mr. Buffett is an outstanding investor, of course, um, sometimes he made uh, good investments, sometimes he did not make good investments, but uh, basically it happens in any investor's life, and he made uh, many more good investments and bad investments. But what is very interesting is that um, he experienced something in Coca-Cola and he did not very much draw the lessons from his Coca-Cola experience and from the 12 years of difficulties in business and in stock market at Coca-Cola to apply that to, to Kraft Heinz. He a little bit repeated the mistake, uh, which does not mean again that he is not an exceptional person, of course, but uh, he did not draw the lessons.